in the scriptures we find, and it is accentuated by Jacob, that our lives are actually really messed up. And that God nevertheless interrupts people's lives with mercy and kindness. And that's really good news for Jacob, who's deeply broken. And it's really good news for people like you and like me. In other words, this series is really about giving hope. It's about giving hope to ordinary people who struggle with doubts, questions, fears, that God's grace can meet us. And and like it did Jacob, uh, over a lifetime, it can actually change us deeply. And so far, this is kind of the 30-second, in case you missed it, uh, summary. Uh, We've seen Jacob strong-arm and deceive the firstborn blessing and steal it from his older brother Esau. We saw him on the way fleeing from his angry brother who wanted to kill him as he went to his, his uncle Laban's to only be met along the way in a profound experience by God at Bethel. And in a moment was changed very significantly by that. And yet the last couple of weeks, we've seen Jacob sort of, in a way, meet his match in trickery and deceit as his uncle Laban has switched out his beloved Rachel on the wedding night for her older sister Leah. Wow, that was a bad one. And nevertheless, uh, Jacob gets Rachel as well. And here we are in the midst of our passage today. And I don't know, it's an absolute mess. We have, perhaps the best way of putting this, a maternal arms race. Both working to one-up the other with more kids. And you know what? Um, When you were first hearing this account, you're probably wondering, okay, is this church? Is this really what's happening here in the Bible? It is, but you're also probably wondering, like, really? I mean, Lee and Rachel, come on. Can we just get past this? Uh, Or maybe even in one moment, you might say, our cultural moment in which we understand women are a lot more than just bearing children, we might say, man, we kind of look down at that culture. But can I just remind us for a moment Actually, at the very base level, this account is really about rivalry. And it's a rivalry really based on really one simple notion. Someone else having something that we don't have. Someone else having what we don't have. Leah may have the children. She has four sons but she doesn't have the affection of her husband, Jacob. Well, Rachel, she may have the affection of Jacob, but she has no kids. And that means in the social circles of the day, she doesn't have much esteem or favor of what Leah has. And she's filled with shame. And that means for both, as they look out at other lives, they realize that their lives are half full. Have you ever felt like your life is half full? In fact, it's quite simple. Think about this for a moment. Who do you compare yourself to? What in your life do you think is missing? You see, 
very simply, this passage shows us how God's grace meets individuals in the midst of their half-filled lives. So three things this morning we're going to see. The root of rivalry, the consequences of rivalry, and then the way out. So let me pray and we'll, we'll get in. Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us, for the sake of your son Jesus, we pray this. Amen. Well, the, the root of rivalry, look, look with me at verse 1 for a moment. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Um, Leah and Rachel, they look at each other and they both want what the other has. Leah looks at Rachel, who is beautiful, who has the love and attention of her husband, and she desires it. And so last week, we saw how she had four sons, hoping that this would somehow get Jacob's attention. Leah's life is half-filled, and Rachel has what she wants. Now, Rachel's filled with envy. She looks at her younger sister, or excuse me, her older sister. And remember, Rachel's kind of the favored one. She's had the looks. She's had the favor. She's kind of had the status. And yet now she has no children. And she is full of shame at her half-filled life. And so she looks at her husband Jacob and in anguish says, Give me children or I die. And it's in that statement where we actually see the root of rivalry in her heart and our heart. She has taken children, a good thing, a good desire, and has put it in the category of an ultimate thing. She has taken a good desire and it has become a demand. It has taken a good desire and it has been a sense of entitlement, particularly in this situation because her older sister has it and she doesn't. And if you want to know how you and I relate, it comes down to one simple observation. In verse 1, it says that Rachel envied her sister. In other words, as I said earlier, who, who do you envy? Who do you compare yourself to? Where do you come up short? You know, for some of us, we can relate to Rachel and Leah directly. It might be kids or a family or a desire for a spouse or perhaps a kind of marriage that's filled with love and devotion. And we look out at others and we end up angry. We end up despairing. For some of us, we deal with this in relationships. You know, we flip on social media and we see two friends hanging out or a group hanging out. And rather than rejoicing at the friendships that are forming we immediately, what happens? We, get, we feel left out. We begin to grow envious. We feel like we're entirely alone. For others of us, we look out and we see others who are more attractive or more gifted, perhaps in athletics or smarts, or perhaps it's a career trajectory that we just can't compete with. And it leads to at least one of two responses. For some of us, it fuels us to work really hard, and we're constantly tired. 
because we want to measure up. And for others of us, we're just filled with despair and anguish because we realize we're never going to make it. We're never going to be as good as them. And either way, the question for each one of us is bound up in Rachel's response, give me children or I die. In other words, what's in the blank for you? Give me blank or I die. What circumstances in your life are currently bringing you to despair? Where are the situations in your life in which anger is being expressed? What good desire in your life has become a demand? You see, to be honest, right, Rachel is a window into our own hearts. Do we see it? But secondly, we see the consequences of rivalry. You know, Rachel and Leah, we see in this passage, dive headlong into this rivalry of one-upmanship. And it really does have great and terrible consequences. Uh, Look for a moment at verse 2. After Rachel says, give me children or shall I die? Look how Jacob responds. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? You know, um, Rachel has put Jacob in a situation that he literally has no control over. Give me children or I die. And in response, Jacob, as many husbands do, is defensive. Rather than comforting her, listening to her, praying for her, leading her to the one who can meet her in the midst of her anguish, as his father Isaac had done with his mom Rebecca when she was in the same situation, Jacob throws doctrine at her. And the consequences continue. In verse 4, Rachel accommodates to the cultural moment of the day in which it was common for kind of the queen wife to take a pseudo-servant and to give it to her husband to conceive and have children through. So Rachel takes Bilhah and gives her to Jacob. And friends, if you don't know this, that's exploitive. Even if it's accommodating in that culture, that's exploitive. And through this servant, two sons are born, Dan and Naphtali. And the names of those two children tell us what Rachel thinks of the situation. Dan means God has judged me or vindicated me. And Naphtali means this mighty wrestling. And in other words, Rachel, after these two births, says basically this, God's on my side. Now, here's what you have to know. In Hebrew narrative, one of the ways that the reader understands what is really happening is through the voice of the narrator. In other words, not every time a character says something is that really true. And it's actually poignant because at the end of this account, we're going to see in verse 22, when Rachel conceives and gives birth to Joseph, the narrator makes it clear that God is the source of that. And the narrator's silence here means that Rachel 
is not necessarily gain God's favor. You see, like Rachel, so many times we adopt, we conform to the world's ways to get what we want, and oftentimes we put God's name on it. When in in reality, he's not involved. And yet, here's what's interesting. Leah will not be outdone. She grabs her servant, Zilpah. Here you go, Jacob. And she has two sons, Gad and Asher. And here's what's interesting. Consider this for a moment. Jacob, what's he doing this whole time? I mean, Jacob, he, he's had a really incredible encounter with God at Bethel. In one way, you could say, as he's been tricked with Laban, he's actually remained faithful to Laban. There's a, there's a sense in which there is change happening, but in this present moment, Jacob, you could say, clearly takes a huge step back. He simply is passive. He says, oh, you want to give me another wife? Okay. Oh, and you too, Leah? He accommodates to the culture and compromises. And what's really intriguing is this exploitation, not only of the two servants, continues, but also with Jacob. This is what's fascinating, because Reuben, the son of Leah, finds mandrakes in a field, which in that day were considered an aphrodisiac, and Rachel makes a deal with Leah. She trades letting Leah have a night with Jacob for mandrakes. And so as Jacob comes in from the field, Jacob, or excuse me, <clears throat> uh, Leah literally says to Jacob that you've been hired, which reduces the marriage to a commercial contract. Jacob becomes merely a means to an end, something to be traded. Here's what's interesting. Rachel and Leah, in the midst of their half-filled lives, what do they do? In the midst of their rivalry, in one way or another, they look out at the people and positions that they are in, and they say this to those around them, it's your life for mine. You're going to be used as a means to an end. And friends, listen, it's actually no different, but perhaps more subtle. Maybe we make it look a little bit nicer, a little bit more presentable as we pursue to fill our lives with what we don't have in in competition to others. But consider this. Sometimes we treat friendships, relationships like commodities We want to make sure the people that we're around are not too difficult. We want to make sure the people that we're around are additives to our lives. Sometimes it means we disregard difficult people or situations because of how it might hinder our lives. Or consider this, some of us, may we treat employees or coworkers with outlandish demands. They're simply pawns. They're simply a means to an end. Whenever we live with this attitude of your life for mine, be very aware that something's going on inside of your heart. Whatever the case, when you live out this root of rivalry, whether we realize it or not, What we do is we treat God as if he's withholding from us. And in the end, 
it's interesting, every one of the relationships in this entire narrative breaks down. There's disunity in the marriage. There's clearly competition between Rachel and Leah. There is no unity there. There's exploitation. Everything is upside down. And the question at this point is, uh, how do we get out of this mess? What's the way out? And it's really surprising, actually. Because right in the midst of the dysfunction, in the midst of the envy, the rivalry, the disunity, the exploitation, the narrator reveals something very surprising. That in the midst of all of that, God is still present. God is actually still at work in the midst of these lives of Rachel, Leah, and Jacob. And consider this, it's very clear in this passage, it's not because they're moral. It's not because they have their lives together. It's simply yet again and only because God is gracious. And there are two ways that the narrator makes this apparent. And the first is simply this. We see this in verse 17 and in part of 22. In verse 17 it says this, And God listened to Leah, and she conceived. And then in verse 22, we see in regards to Rachel, God listened to her and opened her womb. You know, this is informative because in the midst of this entire narrative, in the midst of Rachel and Leah kind of propagating their servants and mandrakes and all their conniving, trying to get children, in the midst of the barrenness, There's this moment where it says, God simply listened. It wasn't because of all the things they were doing, but rather he heard them. And friends, that means one of the most important ways when we're considering our half-filled lives, when we are dealing with envy and disappointment and anger and anguish, is to see in the midst of that, that there is a God who listens There's this great moment in the ministry of Jesus where at one point he looks at his disciples, this is Matthew 7, and Jesus says this, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I love this passage because Jesus calls his disciples evil, (laughs) the ones who have given up everything to follow him. (laughs) Thanks, Jesus. (laughs) But the reason why he does this is because he says, hey, you guys know how to give good gifts to your kids, and you're evil. There's a good father in heaven who actually is better than you. Why don't you ask him? I know this sounds sometimes almost too simple, but one of the ways this text challenges us, in the midst of our anguish, whatever it is, in the midst of our half-filled lives is to speak to him because he listens. And it's not that God is a great vending machine in the sky. This isn't a name it, claim it. It's not that if on your first try it doesn't happen or that five years from now it doesn't happen, that that means you didn't have enough faith. That's not what the scriptures teach. But rather this passage shows us that Simply put, there is a God who listens to us. And listen, 
God listens to people like Rachel and Leah. That ought to give us hope, right? For any of us who are filled with anguish and doubt. One of the things I've been thinking about this week is some of you, there are areas of your life that you have kept to yourself. There are some things you'll talk to God about, but there are some areas which you wouldn't dare to speak. Because whether you like it or not, whether you realize it or not, you've probably maybe said, God, you've withheld in this area. I'm not talking to you in this area. But do you understand this passage? Rachel and Leah are speaking from places of deep anguish, from the most painful points of their life. And there is a God who listens. It's an invitation to have a conversation with God because he listens, he hears. The second thing we see in this passage related to the way out is not only does he listen, but he remembers. In verse 22, this is how it starts. Then God remembered Rachel. In the book of Genesis, the word remember, it means this. One commentator put it this way. It means to focus on that person for their special care and attention. So, for example, in the flood, it says that God remembered Noah and made a wind blow and the waters subsided. When God judged Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed those cities, it was that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of those cities. And here we see Rachel for the third time in the book of Genesis and the last time, God remembering. God giving her the birth of Joseph. And it says that through the birth of Joseph, it's pointing because it says that God removed her reproach. In other words, the thing that brought her the most shame, God removed it. And what's even more remarkable, that there's a greater story, right? How God removes our shame through the birth of another descendant of Jacob. You see, it's interesting this passage, there's... Um, There's a double meaning for Joseph's name. It means, may he add. But it sounds like taken away in the original. And one commentator noted that when Jesus arrives in the book of Matthew, his name means to save his people from the sins, literally to take away, yet also that God gives, in which his name means God with us. See, that's the greater hope. See, as God has been gracious to Rachel... He has been even more gracious to us. We've seen it because it's through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that he removes that thing which actually we ought to be ashamed of. He removes it. He takes it away. And he clothes us with a robe of righteousness, one that is not because of our performance, but because of another. And he welcomes us in to his family through faith. Let me, as we close here, let me invite the worship team to come back up as we continue. But let me just say a couple final notes here. Um, Let me address a couple places you might be this morning. Some of you might be saying, okay, so I know that's, this sounds all true, but I'm not so sure that this really applies to me. 
Perhaps maybe some of you this morning feel like it might be true for the person next to me, but I think I've probably outrun God at this point. You know, he might be gracious, but I don't know. I think I've messed up enough where I think he's done. You know, what's really interesting in this passage is we've seen now Jacob and Leah and Rachel. Do you understand how God has met each of them? Jacob, on the way to Laban, gets stopped in Bethel and encounters God. Right in the midst, God just intersects him. Last week, we saw Leah, who's searching for love. In the midst of searching for love, we see God meet her. And now this week, we see Rachel, one who started out with bitter envy, and in the end, God graciously meets her by remembering her. And one of the things that shows us is that you cannot outrun God's grace. If it's been present for Rachel and Leah and Jacob, it is most assuredly there for you. Lastly, some of you this morning, you look at your half-filled life, whatever it is you're comparing yourself to, and if you're honest, you feel forgotten. And here's the hope from this passage. In the midst of the ways that we try to stuff our lives full, in the midst of our anger, our disappointment, our envy, Bruce Walkie puts it this way. The Bible offers not reproach and not platitudes, but a God who remembers. Let's pray. Father, this morning, um, just pray as your word has just been uh, unpacked in such a way that we see that, Jesus, you are really the hero. Uh, You really are the one that we need for our half-filled lives. Would you help us to know in a deeper, more profound way, maybe for the first time, that if you have not spared your own son, as Paul wrote, that how will you not, along with him, graciously give us all things? God, so take our wanderings, our doubts, our struggles, and let us yet again put our trust in you, the one who remembers. Amen.